Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Naomi Schaefer Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Here at AEI, we have a particular interest in understanding the ways that both government and civil society can help the most vulnerable individuals. And the 440,000 kids in foster care certainly fall into that category. Many of you may be wondering why the title of this event does not include the word pipeline, as in the foster care to prison pipeline. One reason I think not to start with such a phrase is that it presumes the inevitability of the outcome. Using the word pipeline, I think, so often leads to wrong-headed solutions and sometimes even policy paralysis. If it's a pipeline, the message has begun to filter down to even the young people inside of our systems, then your future has already been written. In a 2017 analysis by the Child Welfare Data Analysis Bureau, at the California Department of Social Services and the California Department of Corrections and Rehab. They linked uh, administrative data that were used to find the prevalence of child welfare involvement among inmates in California. 28% of inmates incarcerated between 2000 and 2013 had a history of either an open child welfare case for in-home services or an out-of-home foster placement. 28% is a very high number but it is not the 70% figure that has been sometimes thrown around in other contexts. Today, I hope that our panel of experts will help us shed light on the relationship between foster care and the criminal justice systems and help us to answer some very important questions about about how to help the young people who seem to be on this trajectory. So first today, we're lucky to hear from Laura Bauer, who has been an investigative reporter with the Kansas City Star for 15 years. She is the co-author of their recent a series called Throw Away Kids, which I highly recommend to you. Then we'll hear from Rebecca Padot, an assistant professor of history and government at Misericordia University and the author of The Politics of Foster Care Administration in the United States. Next, uh, we're going to be hearing from Sean Hughes. He is a managing partner in charge of government relations at Social Change Partners. They assist advocacy groups, public agencies, and direct service providers in child welfare and juvenile justice, to help broaden their impact through local, state, and federal policymaking. And finally, we have Greg McKay. He is the Chief Operating Officer at Child Help USA, a nonprofit devoting to helping abused and neglected children. He is the former director of the Arizona Department of Child Safety. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Laura. Thank you so much again for coming. I'm Laura. I've been at the Star for 15 years, but I've been a journalist for more than 26 For much of that time, I've covered child welfare issues. First, as a cops reporter dealing with uh, high-profile deaths, whether in foster care or in the family home. And um, later, as an enterprise reporter looking at um, system failures in some states from high turnover rates, high caseloads. One thing I never looked at, and the star never looked at, and many journalists across the country haven't looked at, is the long-term outcomes for these kids. What is the future like for... Uh, kids who are raised by the state. And so Judy Thomas and I spent a year doing that. And we looked at, you know, what this journey is from removal from the home to foster care to later in life. 
And what we found is there really wasn't a data set to show what that long-term outcome is. So we created one by, Judy and I created a 15-question um, 15 survey that led to these stories. And in the survey, it was just asking about the inmates and across the country, um, what their background was, and then what their time in the system was like. We ended up getting, in 12 states, nearly 6,000 inmates um, participated. And we found that of that um, number, one in four had been in foster care. And so some will say that that is low. Um, our survey is not scientific in any way, and, and we made sure to say that uh, over and over again. But it is a snapshot, and it tells you what life is like for too many of these kids. And so what, what was so interesting that Judy and I found is it wasn't just the one in four number. At the bottom of the survey, they were able to write about their um, time in foster care and what that was like. We heard from hundreds of inmates that was really telling of how they felt that foster care changed them, how they felt that they longed to be with their family. Um, they learned to distrust they learn not to like authority figures. And um, so we really, from the one in four, um, we learn something. But we also learn something from their own words. And so often these kids aren't listened to or aren't heard. Um, through the Kansas survey, that was the first state to sign on to do it. And one reason is, is over the last few years, Kansas's system is very troubled. They knew that the foster care system needs extreme reform, and they're trying to do that now. So everyone in the state said, yeah, sign us up, because we know we need to improve. So we got 1,200 inmates. Um, they surveyed every one of the facilities. Out of 1,200 inmates, one in three in Kansas had been in foster care. So um, that was one of the highest averages. The next highest was North Dakota, but the number was much smaller, but it was 42% who did the survey that had been in prison. But through the surveys, we met a young man named Dominic, and he had gone into the system when he was three years old, um, little uh, older brother, actually, he was four, had gotten out of the house one night and was running around the complex, and they had called police. And um, they had gone to the home to see what was going on, and they found mom's crack pipe on the, on the table. Um, both children were removed. They were kept together. Mom said, I'll sever my rights if you keep them together. That didn't happen. Kansas ended up putting him in different homes. Uh, older brother was adopted. Um, Dominic stayed in the system, adopted three times, and in his words, thrown back each time. Um, he learned to not trust. He, um, in those from 3 to 14, he had 80 placements, which we found across the country that really isn't that alarming. Um, other kids have that many, or almost that many, but Kansas does, and now they're under a um, class action lawsuit with the number of placements being one of the main things. And, um, but what Dominic told us was that he felt that when he aged out of the system, he had nothing. And um, his comments were, I was thrown out when I was 18 and I become homeless. And I wrote down his exact quote, but that was basically what he said. And he said he felt like he had nowhere to go, so he turned to crime. Um, and by the time he was 18, he had six felonies. 
in, when he was 18, he had six felonies. By the time he was 19, he was in prison for eight and a half years. And we in no way, Judy and I know that um, not everyone that goes into foster care is going to end up in prison, obviously. That is not what we found, and that is not the truth. Um, and I think what Naomi said was, it's not a definitive, it's not inevitable that this pipeline exists and that this is where children are going to go. But what we did find is of the kids that we spoke to, um, they had said that when they aged out and they had no one, um, that they didn't know what to do. They, most of them did not have a, a driver's license. Most of them had never had a job. Um, they only got their social security card when they aged out. Um, everyone in their life, when they aged out, had been paid to be in their life. They didn't have those natural supports. So I, um, you know, my son, 23, he's still in my basement, and we love it. And he's going, going to graduate from college soon, and, but these kids didn't have that. Another thing that Judy and I were totally surprised by was the education. Um, you know, education is often um, <laughs> the door to success, and too often kids in care um, do not get the same educational opportunities of their peers. And so that was not on our radar, and we found Oregon has a graduation rate as low as 35%. For the general population, it's 77%. Kansas had 38.6%. The average was 87 um, Kids like Dominic and Joseph and Kisa, um, they never graduated because when they're in high school, after um, going from home to home to home, school to school to school, they had six credits, eight credits. You need anywhere between 21 and 28 credits. So that is one thing that I think, since the story ran, that people have been most surprised about would be the education. So our stories um, you know, started at the survey and showing these are the long-term outcomes, but also took the journey of how they got from being in foster care then ending up in prison. And, and one part that we did find is many of the children that we spoke to that did the survey and of the um, kids that are worked with by social workers that we spoke to, that some of the kids didn't need to be in care, that they could have stayed with family, the services could have helped mom and dad and support them. But what happens is when the systems get clogged, a reporting shows that then those um, homes that are really great, because some kids must be in foster care, um, you know, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse. When you put a, kids in the system that could stay home, then you're taking up those good homes that could go to the children who really need it. And that is one big thing that we found. Um, we also found emerging science is showing that multiple placements for children, like Dominic had 80, is actually changing the makeup of the brain. Um, our colleague Eric Adler did that story, which um, again, was not on our radar, but is starting to pop up in class action lawsuits from Florida to Kansas as being one of the reasons that these night-to-night -night stays have to go away. Um, and then we found that each year about 23,000 kids age out of the system at 18. And um, we talked to kids that were basically dropped off at a homeless shelter when they turned 18. Um, others were told... Judy went to Texas Death Row to talk to a young man who aged out of foster care. And a few weeks before he turned 18, the foster mom came to him and said, you're about to be 18. I'm not going to get paid for you anymore. You've got to go. And um, he obviously is on, on death row. And so we found that 
Of the 23,000 that age out, roughly 4,000, and these are studies have shown these numbers, we didn't find these numbers, but uh, 4,000 become homeless. And then when you're homeless, many of those kids turn to drug addiction, sell drugs, sex trafficking, and then um, later on, there is the path. So not every child um, obviously gets on that. Some foster homes are amazing. They're a salvation for some of these kids. Um, But when you're looking at the overall long-term impact, um, we have social workers telling us that we've got to do something. So I had the opportunity to be embedded in some training in Kansas a couple weeks ago, which the main focus of the uh, training is family preservation and finding family connections. And um, I got to talk to social workers, which normally they don't let reporters do. Um, So that was really eye-opening to me because they were you know, and openly saying, we're taking too many kids in. We've got to do something, Um, especially the older teens. Our survey did show that, and here are all the results, but our survey did show that um, the majority, 40% of those who said they've been in foster care, came in between ages 11 and 15. So you can read more of the series. Our goal was to show what these long-term outcomes were. I think the survey was really helpful to allow us to hear from kids we typically don't hear from. I'm going to talk about three levels of intersectionality between child welfare and criminal justice. Um, the first being, what's the correlation between child maltreatment and later involvement in life in the criminal justice system? The second being, what's the role of the child welfare system and out-of-home care system in responding to the trauma that youth come into the system often have? Um, And the third will be, what are the um, critical uh, resources and supports that youth emancipating out of foster care need? Um, So first I want to talk about the intersection of child maltreatment and uh, criminal justice. Because I think people have a tendency to look at the statistics that are thrown around. Naomi mentioned the 70% figure. Uh, Laura mentioned 25% of the the prison population. um, And really blame the foster care system for this. Um, But I think if you dig into the data a little deeper it gets a little more complicated. So in 2019, uh, the Children's Data Network, which is in Los Angeles County, um, did a study and they basically investigated the situations for all 400,000 youth in the state of California who were arrested in 2014 and 2015. Um, And they looked at linked administrative data, so it's a little bit different than doing a survey. Um, And they found that only, maybe this comes as a surprisingly low number, but they found that only 10% of the youth who were arrested before age 24 actually spent time in foster care itself. But what I think they found that was more important was that 43%, so almost half of those youth, had connections to the child welfare system. A quarter of the youth were the subject of an unsubstantiated allegation. Um, 10% were substantiated but not brought into foster care, and then approximately 10% were brought into foster care. What's interesting is that even if the allegations were not substantiated and the child wasn't brought into foster care, the risk factors were still present. The youth who were the subject of an unsubstantiated report were twice as likely as the general population to be involved with criminal justice later in life. Those who were uh, substantiated but not brought into care were 2.3 times more likely, and those who were brought into care were 2.6 times more likely. So as you might imagine, as you get deeper system involvement, Uh, there's a greater likelihood of criminal justice system involvement. But I think what this shows is that this is a much bigger problem than the foster care system. Ultimately, this is a child maltreatment problem because uh, youth who never actually come in contact with foster care are having these same outcomes. 
Um, next, I want to talk about what is the child welfare system's response. So I think it's important to, to consider that the changing face of foster care. So since 1999, there's been about a 30% national decline in the caseloads of the number of children and youth who are in out-of-home care at any given time. Um, with that, and that's with a growing child population, of course, since 1999. What that tells us is that the front door is closed for a lot of youth, so those who are making it through the front door often are presenting with a higher level of acuity. They've been subjected to more intense maltreatment, probably for a sustained period of time. So then the system has to respond to uh, the average profile being a youth with a higher level of acuity. And that's where oftentimes within our continuum of care, congregate care comes into play. Um, 75 to 80% of the youth who end up in congregate care were in a family-based placement prior to going to congregate care. That placement didn't work out, oftentimes maybe because the foster family or the relative wasn't equipped to respond to the challenges that were presenting in the youth. Um, and so as a consequence, the youth move into congregate care. And even compared to their peers in foster care, children and youth in congregate care are the most vulnerable kids in the system. They're three times as likely to have a mental health diagnosis and six times as likely to have a behavioral health challenge. Um, the role of congregate care in the system is to provide the structured therapeutic environment to provide intensive services, stabilize the child, treat any underlying conditions, and then transition them back to the community. Um, the average stay in foster area in congregate care nationally is only eight months. But that's going to change, I think, in states around the country. <clears throat> it already has been changing in some ways, but the Family First Prevention Services Act, which was a federal law that was passed a couple of years ago, many of you on the child welfare side of this conversation are probably uh, intimately familiar with this law, is going to change the landscape. Um, I think it provides both opportunities to uh, address the intersectionality of child welfare and criminal justice, and also challenges. On the opportunity side, the law allows Title IV-E to be used for mental health and substance abuse services in particular to support uh, children, youth, and families who are candidates for foster care. Um, and so I, I think encouragingly, we're seeing some states get creative about that definition. I know in California, where I live, and in Washington State, where I work a lot, they're looking at the populations of homeless youth and the populations of youth exiting the juvenile justice system as possible candidates for care, leveraging this new opportunity to uh, uh, deliver mental health and substance abuse services to that population. Um, I also think encouragingly in Family First, the age range for Chafee Independent Living Program services was expanded. Historically, only youth ages 16 to 21 were eligible. Now it's 14 to 23. However, I think the law is going to present some significant challenges to states and may have some crossover implications for juvenile justice. Um, for one, a lot of the prevention services that I just mentioned are financed by restrictions on the back end for congregate care programs. So going forward, only four types of congregate care programs will be eligible for federal dollars. And the law really doesn't invest in alternatives. And so if you have states shutting down uh, group homes or lower-level congregate care programs um, without building up the capacity of the community, in particular to handle some of the children and youth who have that profile of the ones that are typically being served in congregate care, uh, you're not going to have uh, safe places for those kids to go, and the worry is that they will cross over to other systems, run away from the foster home, become homeless, and potentially become involved with the juvenile justice system. Uh, Family First also unintentionally is jeopardizing the Medicaid eligibility for children and youth who are going to be served in qualified residential treatment programs. This is super complicated. goes back to like the 1960s and 70s and mental health deinstitutionalization. But basically, Medicaid typically does not fund institutional care for younger people. Um, and this new classification of federal 
congregate care program um, is running afoul of medical law, of Medicaid law, and the concern is that children and youth being served in these facilities will no longer be Medicaid eligible. I know congressional staff are working on this right now. It's something that absolutely has to be fixed. And then lastly, what I'd say about Chafee is it's great that we expanded the age, the age range and that 14 to 23 year olds are now eligible, but there was no new resources to finance that expansion. Um, Chafee's already, in my opinion, an underfunded program. We really need to finance that expansion and, uh, expansion and follow up with dollars. Um, so interestingly, I, I talked about how there's concern that there will be implications for the congregate care restrictions on crossover youth going into juvenile justice. I think Family First actually anticipates that. Um, there are two provisions in the law that I think pertain to juvenile justice directly. The first requires that states certify that they won't enact policies or practices that will increase the number of children and youth going into juvenile justice, which isn't really enforceable. I'm not sure what the enforcement mechanism is for that. Um, and then the second part almost tacitly admits that that's not enforceable by saying, well, we want the Government Accountability Office to study the impacts and the rate at which children and youth are now being moved over into juvenile justice because there aren't congregate care facilities uh, available to care for them. Um, so I think it's interesting that the authors of the law almost sort of knew in the back of their minds that there would be some unintended consequences and there would be more uh, you know, crossover from the older youth population in foster care into juvenile justice. And then last, I want to talk real quickly about youth emancipating out of foster care. Um, when I was on the Hill, I helped write the 2008 Fostering Connections Act, which extended foster care to 21. The idea of that law was not to extend dependency, it was really to create a bridge to self-sufficiency. And what we're seeing in states across the country is that it's working, and it's really a protective factor to, pre to prevent criminal justice involvement. Um, the National Youth and Transition Database is tracking thousands of youth across the country who are transition-age foster youth and their outcomes. And their most recent report to Congress, I think that was last week, showed that youth who remain in extended foster care at age 21, only 7% are incarcerated. But youth who, go, uh, youth who emancipate out and don't stay in extended foster care at age 21, 23% are incarcerated. So you have over a 300% protective factor here for participation in extended foster care for these youth. I think it's important that all states opt in, we make these programs accessible for eligible youth, and that we really make them as robust as possible. And then lastly, I want to talk real quickly about workforce. Um, I think this is the missing link in extended foster care right now. Uh, we're doing a really bad job of preparing our youth for the workforce upon emancipation. There was an Annie E. Casey Foundation report a couple years ago, Fostering Youth Transitions that found that all the youth who are accessing transition services, mostly through Chafee programs, only one in four are receiving employment programs or vocational training, meaning we're really not delivering the kind of career readiness services they need. I think one of the big reasons that's happening is the largest federal program that funds youth workforce development, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, WIOA, um, while foster youth, current and former foster youth, are categorically eligible for WIOA, there are a number of barriers to WIOA access for this population. And as a consequence, only 6,000 youth in the country, current and former foster youth, are accessing a WIOA service in any given year. That's about 2 to 3% of the eligible population. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done on the WIOA end to make sure that those services are accessible and youth can get the academic and career support, internships and apprenticeships they need to be work ready upon emancipation so that they don't have criminal justice system involvement later in life. Hi, everyone. 
So I'm Dr. Rebecca Padot. I'm a non-resident senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania at two programs and also an assistant professor at Misericordia University. And I'll be talking to you on criminal justice and foster care as kids go in, as kids come out. And I want to thank Naomi for organizing this and all of you for being committed to this issue, um, many of you probably in your daily jobs. So as kids go in, kids, one of the ways kids enter foster care is because of a parent's incarceration. And so that's my first point as, as kids go in. The second point is, as kids come out, is when foster kids leave foster care, they have a risk of entering incarceration themselves. And so um, kids go in when their parents go in. So there's a 2004 state prison data survey that talked about when the fathers entered prison, 2% of the children um, end up in foster care home or agency. When it was a mother, it was over five times that rate. It was 11%. One in 30 parents in state prisons have children in foster care. Um, and there was federal data that was just released in August that showed that the primary reason kids go, or not the primary, one of the reasons that kids go in foster care is a parental incarceration. 20,000 kids were going in for that reason alone. Um, that doesn't even include the kids who also have a parent incarcerated, but that's not the reason for entering foster care. So when you look at the total adult correctional population, you see the um, trend of up, 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 up in the U.S. and then a recent decline um, because of the First Step Act passed in 2018 and some other current policy trends. Um, we are beginning to see a decline in that population nationwide. That could affect this decrease of kids as kids go in um, with foster care. But there's a lot of variables. One, as you pointed out, Sean, which is um, how at risk are the youth entering the opioid epidemic, right? So this pattern is to be determined. So let me get to the second point, which is really what I want to focus on today, and that is as kids come out. So when foster children leave foster care, they are at increased risk of entering the criminal justice system. Um, a 2004 Bureau of Justice study showed that 14% of parents in state prison reported um, living in a foster home agency or um, institute. Um, these were 17% of mothers and 14% of fathers. So uh, now I want to talk about my book, which is The Politics of Foster Care Administration in the United States. It was published by Rutledge Press, and um, it was designed to discover the conditions under which foster care outcomes can be improved. And one piece of this book was looking at this relationship of foster care and criminal justice. So without getting into the methodology, um, I looked at different child welfare outcome indicators, which you may be familiar with, right, that the federal government collects. States um, generate this data across um, a lot of indicators that we want to improve over time, um, time to permanency, um, abuse while in care, um, reunification without reentry, right, so it's not this revolving door, um, how many placements, as Laura talked about in her talk. And so I looked at this data. And from that data, I tabulated outcomes that arrived at some strong states and some weak states. And the strong states identified at the time of research design were um, Michigan and Delaware, and the weak states were identified as um, New York and Rhode Island. Um, I then went into those states, and I want to say, first of all, that those are not states I would classify now. I would have to rerun the numbers. But um, I went into those four states, and I looked at... Um, I, I went in and looked at what was going on in these states, right? So I went into cities and towns in all these states, and I did over 55 key player interviews, most of which were with elites. So what that means by elite key player interviews is things like talking to the governor of Delaware or state chief justice for a state or the head of a legislative committee or the executive director of a foster care provider or the state department of human services director or the head of foster care for the state. So one of the things I found was that um, 
the strong states, should, which are doing better by our kids while in care, right? So they have, they're not moving the kids lots of times. There's less abuse. Um, I found that they also have problems with their kids integrating into society at higher rates. Now, obviously, there are lots of great success stories. And um, for people who've been foster parents and done an awesome job, those are you know success stories we have. But with that being the case, we have too many kids that are not doing great with outcomes. So here is the data from those interviews of people I talked to. Okay, so the executive director of a foster care provider said, only 50% of my kids will make it, not homeless, not in jail. The rest is really a crapshoot. And again, this is um, one of the model states used in the study. Um, another executive director of a foster care provider told me a lot of what we foster care programs do is a Band-Aid. Former foster kids end up in homeless or in the criminal justice system. 30% of the general homeless population is from foster care. Now let's move to the, the other uh, strong state of Michigan, and this is just some of the data today. Less than uh, This is from the Director of Child Welfare, Catholic Social Services of Wayne in Detroit. Less than 50% will have jobs and not be homeless or in jail. Nine times out of ten, it's cyclical. The system is in such crisis, it's not focused on the long term, and their chance of success is very low. I know I wasn't ready to be out there at 17 or 18. Um, 40, uh, the Michigan State Foster Care Review Board program manager told me 40% of former foster care youth will be okay, not enter the criminal justice system, mental health system, or be homeless. And I'll continue with comments from the stronger state of Michigan. 40, uh, the director of Child Children's Center in Detroit said 47% of the kids aging out in the system nationally are going into the criminal justice system. Uh, the program representative overseeing seven foster care review boards in Michigan. Children seem to be more disturbed from when I first started in child welfare to the 70s until now, something that you said, Sean. Um, their drug problem has been devastating on the child welfare system. Maura Corgan, uh, former chief justice of the Supreme Court, who actually after interview went to become the state Department of Human Services director, the third one that I had interviewed in Michigan, um, said, I won't even hazard a guess as to how these former foster care kids will be doing in 25 years. In Detroit, we're now at a 90% out-of-wedlock birth rate. We're only graduating 25% of the kids in Detroit public schools who start as freshmen. Um, I then looked at data that other people had um, done and put that into my book. So Chapin Hall University of Chicago study looked at 700 former foster youth over a 10-year period and found that 30% of the males and... Um, 11% of the females reported being incarcerated um, at least one time between age 17 and 18, and many more were arrested. Now, remember, this doesn't even fall in long term. This is just data from 17 to 19. Um, the Casey Young Adult Survey followed 1,000 of their alumni from their Casey family programs in foster care and found that 32% of these foster youth had been arrested since leaving foster care. And what's striking about this is they, they do their own best practice research from academics and practitioners. And so their program is modeled after best practices, and yet they're, so they should have you know, better outcomes than what you would see nationally at some other programs, and yet they still were sending one-third, um, not sending them, but were ending up, right, to, um, as a result of that. And so um, you see this, this general trend. And so basically what I concluded in the book was that quick placements, minimal transfers, good permanency strategies, and minimal abuse do not always equate to foster care children ultimately having successful adult lives, growing up with jobs, staying out of the correctional system, not being homeless, and that even the stronger states are having problems with these long-term outcomes 
Um, and so we need to focus on long-term outcomes for foster care kids post-care and not just tracking the short-term outcomes while kids are in care, right? So the federal government 30 years ago wasn't even tracking those short-term uh, short outcomes in all the categories it's doing now. We now at least have that data so we can look at different states, how they're performing, et cetera. But we need to follow the child longer. We need to fund following them longer. And we also, um, you know, this needs to be a consortium as it is now, right? It's a government by proxy system where it's federally funding. States are involved. You've got private and nonprofit partners, which makes it a government by proxy system. And so you've You've got to involve all those people in solving the problem. So I proposed a couple solutions, and I have many more ideas for how to solve this. But one is this concept of a volunteer child liaison. Um, and so this is borrowing from the mentoring research literature. It's borrowing from programs that are already done, like the Mentoring Children of Prisoners policy that is um, was federally funded with HHS, also um, Bureau of Justice does programs like this. And so the focus of the pilot is to establish a human link that mitigates the upheaval the children experience in foster care. And so someone would um, vo volunteer, right? And so they would follow the child from the minute they enter the system. And so they're following that child. They're, they're in the, you know, someone in the public who's just choosing to do this. They stay with the child for a five-year period, assuming they stay within a 60-mile radius. And they are an advocate. They're an advocate for their child. They're their problem solver. They go help them find a computer when they can't afford a computer, that they need to complete schoolwork. They go help them figure out mental health providers. Which one can I use? I have no idea who to call. I don't even know I need mental health help. And so you might say to me, well, doesn't that sound like what caseworkers do? Right? And, and yes, caseworkers do do this, but we know there's very high caseworker turnover. We also know the caseworkers, right, if the child is reunified at some point, that caseworker is no longer involved. Um, we also know the reentry occurs, so you have reunification without reentry. We also know that um, there's, you know, caseworkers in some states have very high caseloads, right? So they can't have this relationship to track down how to find a computer. And so this volunteer child liaison would be that person. The second proposal in my book is a volunteer youth liaison. It's the same concept, but move the timeline. So as children are aging out, um, having somebody in their corner who follows them until age 25 at a minimum, obviously I prefer much longer, but you know these are volunteers. How much can you put on them? Um, and so they are the person who's with the child while they're going through all these major decisions. And I know one of the reasons I love being a college professor is because I get to touch kids when they're making major decisions. Should I take out a private loan or a federal loan for college? Should I, what job should I do? I care about this population, what should I do? Should I get married first or go to graduate school next? And so this um, youth liaison does that same concept in that they're helping support that child as they're aging out, getting services or whatever they need or finding a job or, um, or doing a skilled trade, whatever it is they're supporting that person. Um, and I just want to say from personal experience, I draw on this and that I had a personal experience where I found um, three uh, at-risk youth who visited a food bank. I was volunteering one day, fell in love with them, and followed them for decades. And they have gone through um, lots of stuff, incarcerated parents, all you name it, very high on the ACEs scores. And they are doing really, really well. And I was a volunteer in their lives who just followed them over time, helped do these types of things. How do I get a computer? How do I get a swimsuit, right? Um, just those types of things we worked on for years. Um, and I also want to say that um, personally, my husband and I have a very small nonprofit. 
And we noticed over time that the older at-risk youth needed a lot more help into their 30s. And so if we're doing this nationally, right, nationally we've decided that um, kids should be on health care up until age 26, right? And we know that lots of um, independent children outside the foster care system still have support by their parents, right? They're, co- you know, these college students or even non-college students are living at home, whatever. So we've decided nationally to support non-foster care kids. And so this, ha- this conversation has to also go to foster children. Good afternoon, everybody. So thank you, Naomi, for inviting me. And thank you for being here to listen to this conversation. Um, so my name is Greg McKay. Just by way of some background for context, I was a cop for 20 years. I was with the Phoenix Police Department. Uh, While there, I worked in the Organized Crime Bureau. I worked in the Street Gang Unit. I worked in the Crimes Against Children Unit. I worked undercover, and I worked homicide. Uh, While I was a Crimes Against Children Unit detective many years ago, my wife and I became foster parents to a preschool child that was brutally victimized in major crimes. And um, so I have that experience uh, as well. So after my career in law enforcement, I was, well, during my career, actually, I was borrowed by former Governor Jan Brewer of Arizona to be loaned to the State Department of Economic Security's Child Protective Services to create the very first child protection system that uh, integrated law enforcement officers to do criminal investigations with social workers. after doing that for about two and a half years, Governor Ducey was elected and asked me to run Arizona's cabinet agency, the Department of Child Safety, which is a 3,000-employee uh, organization that deals with everything from the hotline to investigations to foster care adoption, permanency, and the like. So when I joined, Arizona was the 50th worst-ranked state in America for most major indicators. My first week on a job, I often joke that I found out that our child abuse hotline didn't answer the phone. 35% of callers hung up because they were on hold for so long. We had 33,000 open reports. We had 16,000-plus backlogged investigations that nobody had touched. We had a 45% turnover. We had, on average, 156 cases per every case manager in the organization. We had no service array left because Arizona had grown foster care by 93% in seven years, which meant there was no longer any foster homes, there was no longer any shelters, any congregate care, service providers, attorneys, and the whole whole system was saturated and on its side. I also, and we, and we, you know, we had basically 19,043 kids in foster care when I started. And, uh, I also had the great news of having a $67 million deficit, and I couldn't make payroll in my first uh, couple months on the job. So that was fun. Um, but uh, fortunately, four and a half years later, Arizona's hotline was number one in the nation. We eliminated our criminal uh, case backlogs. We went from 150 cases per person to 15. We shrunk foster care by 25% safely down to about 13,800 from 19,000. We reduced shelter usage by 78%, congregate care usage by 25%. And with all those reductions, we saw no uptick in reoccurrence of maltreatment or reentry into foster care, which goes to show this system 
being saturated was causing kids to come into the system that didn't belong there, which is tragic. So after leaving that, just last September, I joined Child Help, which is a national nonprofit for uh, the intervention and treatment and prevention of child abuse. So um, and one, one more point I want to just discuss based on uh, Sean's presentation and the great work that they did years ago with extended foster care. In Arizona, um, one of the things that we have and all systems have is at, at 18 years of age, it's not a cliff event. You know, I've heard a story, the anecdotal story, about they're given a hefty bag and their belongings and they're said goodbye as soon as they turn 18. It's not reality. The reality is that most of these kids are so system fatigued by the time they turn 18 that they don't want anything to do with the system any longer. So it's our job in Arizona. We start working with kids at 14 to get them ready for young adult programs where they get subsidy, college tuition, independent living skills, and a case manager till age 22. But they have to opt in. And systems that are really on their side, of course, see every additional kid as an additional caseload. So sometimes they let them go, and they don't try to work them in. I am not here to dispute that foster care is not the place kids should grow up. Kids who grow up in foster care naturally um, don't have the best outcomes. Um, but there is also an immense amount of trauma that provokes kids from entering foster care that sometimes is lost in these conversations. So obviously families should raise children, not courts or executive agencies and governments. And the, the trauma that results in these kids going into foster care and related attachment disorders and all these things are part of their past, oftentimes. Uh, they don't get created once an intervention happens, they land in foster care, although some places obviously are, you know, there's good and there's bad of everything, and some foster parents are not good people, and some are wonderful people. There are choke points throughout these systems that really result in uh, a poor experience for children. And that's obvious. But, you know, foster care is a sad reality of our country today. And, you know, the root causes uh, that bring kids into foster care are very little talked about. You know, we all just want to talk about government intervention, foster care, and the pipeline to prison, we don't want to talk about why kids are coming into contact with police and CPS on a normal basis in their life and what those reasons are. So the path of least resistance, in my opinion, is just to blame government and then absolve everybody of their conduct all the way through the system, uh, to include people who, in, who are in prison now who say, their stints in foster care caused them to do the bad things that they did. I think that the, the data that we talk about is, uh, although I know there's attempts at getting better data, but it's highly anecdotal. And it also can be manipulated depending on what story it is you're trying to tell. So I'm not here to dispute data or dispute that people in prison had bad lives, because most certainly they did. But was it because of foster care, or was it because of a bad life? Was it because of a bad family? Was it because of broken families and multiple paramours and intense neglect and a mentally ill parent, domestic violence or trauma, 
sexual abuse or physical abuse or overall just grand dysfunction that led them to be taken into the care of the state because there was no other safe alternative. So we simply fail to discuss those factors, I think, on a normal basis, and we merely form these nexus, this nexus between foster care and prison, and that's what we're focusing on. And one of the other things is the crossover youth population that exists. So anyone who doesn't understand that, a crossover youth is one who started out dependency-involved, meaning in foster care, and then became delinquency-involved and ended up in a delinquency system, or vice versa. And there's been a lot of work in this country about how to prevent crossover youth uh, and those outcomes of being dual-system-involved. But I would beg to you that Reforms in America have provoked that very outcome to occur. We've created a crossover youth problem in this country. So many, many years ago, they had the deinstitutionalization of juvenile justice reform, basically saying misdemeanor and status offenses should never result in any detention or incarceration. I think we all agree that that is true. But it has gone major leaps forward and has now resulted in systems that don't detain children or young, or young adults who committed major crimes. And they have no opportunity for rehabilitation through the detention system or the juvenile justice system. And you could argue all day whether those interventions are healthy or not. But merely putting kids into a foster care system and thinking they're going to get better for it is not the answer. Foster care systems treat parents, not children. So what I had experienced as the director of Arizona's system trying to protect foster youth, my job was not to protect all children in the state of Arizona, although some thought it was. My job was to protect vulnerable, dependent children whom were harmed by their families and who were put in a foster care system for protection and safety and permanency. And what I ended up dealing with was reforms that led detention and juvenile justice systems to offload their delinquent youth into a foster care system with no dependency involvement whatsoever. Meaning, kids had a family, they were not dependent. They were un, not unsafe by virtue of their home environment or their parent. They merely committed crime after crime or probation violation after probation violation and were foisted into the foster care system by a judge who didn't want to detain or incarcerate. And that problem was massive in Arizona. Arizona's group care and foster home were used for congregate care group homes were used mainly in Arizona for large sibling groups or some licensed family foster homes just don't want to take older youth. They feel like the culmination of trauma and life experiences is going to be too challenging for their home. So older youth oftentimes go to congregate care or behavioral health disorders or therapeutic needs or sexually maladaptive they need to go to these types of placements. But um, our congregate care populations were being filled up with solely delinquent youth, never having had an adjudication for dependency. 
I beg to you that potentially these types of youth who are entering into foster care and then end up in prison someday, well, perhaps they entered foster care solely for delinquent reasons and then ended up in prison someday. And obviously I'm not disputing that some kids who are dependency involved commit crimes eventually because they've had hard lives. Not only are delinquents being pushed into the foster care system for reform purposes, and they're causing harm to dependent children in foster care, it is not a secure setting. They leave, they AWOL, and they go out and they commit other crimes. And so are we doing the right thing by these delinquents? By not holding anybody accountable? So we're not rehabilitating anyone at that age range, and they turn 18 and they end up involved with the adult system. So what are we considering doing in Arizona? changing the law to extend the age range of a minor to 19. So instead of dealing with these problems, we're going to let somebody continue to deal with the juvenile justice system and now until they're 19 or 20. That doesn't sound like a solution to me. Was it foster care that created that pipeline? I disagree. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.